Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Rado, the portfolio manager of the Long Reach Mara Sustainable Seafood Fund. Keen listeners to the fund might recognize the fact that we had Andrew on the podcast back in September 2021, episode 97, for people who want to go back and listen to it. We talked to uh, Andrew about starting off the fund, investing in transferable quotas, I should say, uh, of live seafood, wild caught live seafood in Australia. We talk about the portfolio he's built, the performance of that, the impact it's having and what they've learned through that process, as well as the outlook for the fund going forward. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please do Also listen to the uh, disclaimer at the end of the podcast and be reminded that the podcast is recorded for informational and entertainment purposes only, that it is not specific advice. Enjoy the podcast. Andrew Rado, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Great to be back, David. Well, it was uh, in the middle of COVID, I think we first did this uh, remotely back in episode 97 of September 2021. So it's great to have you on board again, um, perhaps worthwhile just reminding those people who haven't been as conscientious listening back down there to episode 97 up to about 156, I want to say now, um, who you are and what you do. Sure. So the last time we spoke, it was during COVID and Longreach Maris was created during COVID. So border lockdowns, a lot of virtuals, and obviously the podcast uh, back in 21 was a, was a virtual podcast. So Longreach Maris was born out of uh, an idea generated in Tasmania and we uh, created a fund to invest in wild caught fisheries around Australia. And why, why, did you, why did you do that or come up with that or what was the genesis of that thinking? Well, I spent a whole career in food and agri and investments and the food thematic around wild caught fisheries is compelling. It's, uh, it is a, a high value protein where the supply side is capped, fundamentally capped by uh, regulation, which is called the total allowable commercial catch. So as demand grows, global demand grows for wild caught seafood and the supply side is fixed, then the value of seafood, the beach price and therefore the underlying asset value can only go one way, which is up. And, and when were those sort of regulations introduced. I, I kind of think about this as a little bit like water rights where um, the ownership of that water was separated from land ownership a number of years ago and put a price on it um, for ecological purposes. And once you start to price something, it, it flows through to the economy and tends to, lo- tends to lead to a single most efficient use for it. When was that framework for wild caught fisheries um, and sea life sort of enacted in Australia? ITQs or, or this fisheries management style mm-hmm. was introduced in the early 80s. So uh, it was first introduced in the southern bluefin tuna fishery and the Tasmanian abalone fishery in the early 80s. Okay, so they were the rarest forms of seafood pretty much, were they, or ones that needed to be the most protected at risk of overfishing? No, um, it was... It was uh, fisheries management started at those and over time, over 
nearly 40 years, slowly all fisheries are transitioned to this type of management. So it wasn't it's the, it wasn't the most endangered or the rarest. It was that's where it started. Yes. And um, and was there a reason why they started with those two species? Um, well, the southern bluefin tuna fishery has been a classic example where it was depleted and now it's back into full recovery mode as a result of really strong management. Um, so it, the Tasmanian abalone fishery lended itself to that type of uh, management style or management uh, system. And um, you're right, it, it led to the most efficient use of the resource. So achieving sustainability is, is one of the key overarching principles of uh, quota managed fisheries. Mm-hmm. And then efficiencies and many other drivers. So the Productivity Commission issued a report in 2016 and it said that uh, the default management system for fisheries in Australia is an ITQ managed fishery. So the Productivity Commission recognises that this is the most efficient mechanism to manage fisheries, but it Mm -hmm. achieves many others, including uh, sustainable outcomes for fisheries management. And when you talk about and think about sustainable outcomes, how do you measure that or quantify what they might be? Sustainable fisheries are... Uh, are set or determined by a range of inputs. So you've got science, you've got industry, uh, and you've got um, a whole range of of key key indicators that set uh, a sustainable framework. And it's it, there are many inputs, many measurement, many measurements that go into setting a sustainable fish or determining a sustainable fishery. And um, and that's have slowly evolved over many many decades. So m- more inputs, more data collection. Uh, so you've got things like uh, uh, catch efforts, or uh, egg counts, or recruitment counts, or settlements. So there are scientists at CSIRO, fisheries departments, measuring this data every day. And tell me, what did the industry look like then and what does it look like now in terms of fishing quotas? Um, we've talked a little bit about this, I know, in the first, but I think it would be good to just to recap on it. So before quota managed fisheries, so if you go back prior to the, the 1980s when ITQ managed fisheries were first introduced, so you're talking the 60s and the mm-hmm. 70s and, and parts of the 80s, it was effectively uh, the anything go show. If you had a boat and you live near the water, you could go fishing and uh, there was no real controls on how, how, how many fish were taken out of, uh, out of a fishery until there was indications that fish stocks were declining. So prior to that, there was a, a belief that our oceans were inexhaustible, mm-hmm. were infinite. So you could just keep on fishing with no... Um, with no uh, recourse on on fish stocks until some fisheries started to decline. And that's where uh, management systems were introduced and they were called input controls. And that was limit the number of days, closing seasons, limit the number of boats, limit the number of nets, limit the inputs to take fish. But fishermen were quite ingenious and they got around these input controls and then there was a fundamental shift, and that was switching from an input control to an output control. An output control is just setting the number of kilos or number of tonnes can be taken 
in any any year, which is where quota comes in. Mm -hmm. So prior to an output control, there was no quotas. So quota is effectively an output control to limit, cap how many kilos can be taken out of the ocean. And then that quota was unitized. This is where the ITQ comes in. So quota is the number of kilos can be taken out. And then all the commercial fishermen on the day were given their units in the fishery. If they could demonstrate their catch history, mm -hmm. they all got in a room and got their units. So units are homogeneous, they're all equal, and they give every commercial fisher a proportion of the fishery. And then they become tradable, so you can buy, sell and lease quota units. So that's where the ITQ, that, that, that term comes in, individual transferable quota exists now but it's been this 40-year evolution to get to this the best management system in the world so we've got overseas countries looking at trying to adopt what australia's developed so australia has would it be regarded as a leading system in the world for managing fisheries world class so japan <laughs> yes who is the biggest consumer of seafood in the world is now looking at what australia has done in terms of managing its fisheries so Seafood protein is, feeds many people in the world, billions of people. And having sustainable oceans is critical to make sure that those people can have a highly nutritious protein well into the future. So, and Andrew, are those quotas by geographic region and species? So uh, a fishery is defined by either a species or a geographic area. Mm -hmm. So there are many fisheries across Australia because it's a big island. Yes. So you go all the way from the Antarctic all the way up to the tropics and all the way from east to west. And there are many species. The beauty about Australian oceans, it's very diverse. And um, so species and geographic area, but also there's state implications. So a Queensland fishery is different to a New South Wales fishery. Okay. And that means you've got a, a sort of borderline roughly where the border is or exactly where it is going out to the international jurisdiction i take it correct so most most fisheries are managed by the states yes and then you have the commonwealth fisheries are managed by uh, the commonwealth and they're the they're the sort of longer distant fisheries so they, yep. they go out to the economic exclusion zone are there any species of seafood or sea life that aren't covered by a quota i.e that you can just go and get as much of of it as you want today so the the major the very large, the major commercial fisheries are all managed under a quota system. There are some small ones that are still transitioning, so you need a, a licence. Yes. These are now you know, the, the really small scale fisheries. So there, there is a management cost to an ITQ managed fishery, so that there's a threshold where, um, where it hasn't transitioned yet because it's just too small. Yes. What would be an example of one of those or one where... You know, it's just a free-for-all that anyone it's, can go yeah, and get. There are no free-for-alls. So the free-for-alls finished a long time ago. Yes. Now we're just talking about but is the it, type of management. Is there anything that's so rare that they don't have a quota on it because the likelihood of somebody going to catch one in Australian waters is, you know, no, they, don't, they don't really no, exist? There's, there's, okay. it's, it's not like that. So, it's you know, for example, there's... Um, um, parts of Victoria, there are inlets or estuaries where there's... People can go catch yes. um, some mullet, of, you know, an example mm -hmm. in the estuary, but it's not a quota system because it's a very small fishery. Yes. But you still need a licence and it's still regulated. And 
Okay. So let's talk about this from an investment thesis now. Um, what is the objective from an investment perspective of the fund and what is the size of the fund? So we launched the fund in September 21, uh, very well supported by CODA and the fund, the strategy. Uh, so we have uh, the uh, Long Reach Mara Sustainable Seafood Fund and uh, institutional mandate. So the overall total size of the strategy is 300 million AUM. Mm -hmm. So we've grown that over just over two years. And the, the principles of, of the fund or the strategy is is a food investment. Mm -hmm. We can sort of get lost in the weeds here when we talk about ITQs and, sure. and quotas. And, but at the end of the day, this is a fundamentally a food investment. And the, the strong macro thematic of this food investment is there's global markets. You have a highly nutrition, nutritious protein mm -hmm. and the supply side is fundamentally capped by regulation, by TAC or the total allowable commercial catch. So... The drivers of, of returns are lease income from the ITQs, so the, the T is transferable, so you can lease it. Yes. And then over time, uh, there's been a capital appreciation of the underlying underlying asset, which is uh, the ITQ. So when they were first issued, mm -hmm. when, a, when a fishery transitioned to an ITQ, the commercial fishers who could demonstrate a catch history were allocated their units. They got them automatically. They, they got their matter cost base at zero. Okay. And over time, they're, they're, they've appreciated in value uh, considerably, and that depends on, on, the, on the type of fishery. And, you know, the unintended consequences of these ITQs having high value now is there are barriers to entry and, you know, it's, the cost structures are high. So this is where Longreach Maris comes into its own in terms of delivering really strong positive impact and ESG outcomes uh, on the ground. We're, we're literally talking about fishing communities, fishing towns, coastal region, regional areas where ITQs are the lifeblood of, of this fishing community mm -hmm. and we keep them in the town, keep them within the family but freeing up capital and bringing ESG and aligned capital. So you've got the 35-year-old fisher who's been working on a boat for the last 10 years, want to go out and start out on their own. They've got to buy a boat. They've got to buy equipment. They've got a heap of things. The capital outlay for the fishing quota is too much, but they can actually lease that from yourself instead of buying it outright. Is that, that, that That's one example of getting the next generation of fishers in because it is prohibitive. <clears throat> Uh, to to buy, you know, the full full uh, requirement of fishing quota. Mm -hmm. They can afford the equipment, but they might not be able to afford, you know, the, the major asset is is the quota itself. So, but there's there's other examples where um, fishing families are passing the baton down to their children, and the parents want to retire. So you got succession planning, and uh, and until Longreach Maris. Uh, created this fund, there was no solution right across Australia for succession planning in uh, this, this industry at a national level. Uh, the other one is introducing Indigenous fishers into this industry, mm -hmm. being excluded from the wild, predominantly excluded from the wild caught seafood industry because they weren't in the room when they were first allocated because they didn't demonstrate their commercial catch history. So we're now bringing in 
in many Aboriginal coastal communities, bringing them into this you know, wonderful industry, which they've been excluded from historically because they've never had their allocation provided. So we're providing many positive impacts on the ground around young fishers, regional fishers, keeping uh, quota in family hands through succession planning and uh, where we've really, the rubbers hit the road in terms of real positive impact is getting indigenous fishers, creating their own businesses and enjoying uh, you know, the commercial outcomes of uh, providing wild caught seafood to markets. And in what sort of regions or port is that tending to happen, Andrew? Uh, so we started uh, when we launched uh, the fund, Long Ranch Maris Sunwell Seafood Fund. We had a particular focus on North Queensland and uh, there are two mud crab fisheries. Uh, so we, we probably look for inshore coastal fisheries because uh, they have this innate skill set of catching uh, th- these types of uh, wild caught seafood. You know, many, many thousands of years ago when they first arrived, they, the first thing they would have eaten would have been insh- you know, inshore seafood before, um, before the, sort of, uh, the other sort of main food items that, 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 that kept them um, sustained. So they've got this innate skill set to go catch mud crabs or abalone because it's inshore. So we're not looking at these distant sort of fisheries where you've got to go you know, 100 kilometres off, off the coastline to go, to go fishing. So we started in the mud crab fishery in Queensland, identified either existing um, existing fishers or uh, that were leasing quota or indigenous communities who really wanted to have a go. And we supported them um, with engagement, um, helped them with funding applications with ILSC, um, with training, g- getting them equipped and trained to go create a business. So we've also identified the Tasmanian abalone fishery um, as uh, another inshore fishery that can lend itself to uh, indigenous harvesting. And we've identified and found indigenous fishes in Tassie. So these are, you know, the descendants from from Bruni Island, indigenous mm-hmm. folk, and and um, and they're, they're existing fishers, so they're now going to get supported by our fund through the provision of secure, long-leased abalone ITQs. Terrific. How long have people been investing in ITQs for, Andrew? So the first, uh, the first trade would have been done in ITQs when the first allocation was made. And the first s- trade would have been between fishermen. Yes. You know, fisherman who was exiting or retiring and his neighbour or his mate down the road would say, okay, I'm, I'm getting out, do you want to buy it? And the guy goes, well, I want to grow my business, so I'll buy your ITQ. So the first ITQ was, um, was trade would have been between fishers, mm-hmm. but that pool of capital runs out eventually. And particularly as ITQs increased in value, um, that's when this sort of, let's call it the external investor, uh, stepped in, but it's it's an opaque industry to an outsider. You know, it's if you don't understand how the industry works, it's difficult. It's a difficult instrument or an, an asset to sort of understand how it works. So you really need industry knowledge to understand how, how how ITQs fundamentally work. And the nuances. What what what's the sort of expectation from an investor in the space for both income and capital growth? Do you think is reasonable? So. 
it all depends on the, the fishery. So they all have different drivers. So um, you know, whether it's tuna quota or swordfish quota or flathead quota or abalone quota or lobster quota, they all they're not they're not uniform across fisheries. So you actually got to understand the fishery and the underlying asset, uh, the ITQ itself. But if you look look at sort of the long term historics, you know there's there's a strong yield, and the yields uh, in the past have sort of been over you know over many years in the range of six, seven, eight percent yields, and then on top of that there's been quite strong capital growth, and one of the big drivers of uh, seafood demand and seafood uh, prices at the at the wholesalers or the Sydney fish markets or the local fish shop mm-hmm. has been um, has been changes in in consumption patterns and uh, the Sydney fish markets put out a study and one of the biggest drivers of that is uh, immigration immigration has fundamentally changed the consumption of seafood in Australia and that's going to continue so. Right now, we have about 27 million people in Australia. There's talk of a big Australia, 40 million plus people built on immigration. Well, they're going to come from high seafood consuming countries, North Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, Southern Asia. And they have high seafood consumption per capita rates compared to uh, other countries. So what we see is seafood demand growing well into the future. So a lot of seafood that we export, I think, will be consumed domestically over time as we as Australia moves from 27 million people to you know 40 million people which was you know recently reported and uh, we have we'll have immigration that um, will drive seafood consumption so lobster more lobster consumed in Australia more abalone consumed in Australia more tuna consumed domestically and how's the immigrant taste for uh Seafood differ to Australian taste for seafood traditionally. Uh, what, what what are some of the demand drivers that you see um, typically? So I mean, let's call it the the Mediterranean type palate. You know, mm-hmm. it's the you know the the sardine and the fish and chips or the English. You know, the, the typical you know fish and chip type style. Yes. You know, fish fillets are now you know moved into um, you know live seafood. You know, so you, you go to. Chinatown, you'll see restaurants full of live seafood. So you've got lobster, all the crab species. Um, so you've got spanner crab, king crab, um, blue swimmer crab. So so that that change and, and mud crab. Um, so Singapore chili mud crab is a classic example where prior to uh, Asian immigration, it wouldn't have existed as a dish amongst, um, you know. In Australia. In a, and, and Andrew... Um, you talk about export at the moment. What percentage of Australians Australia's live caught catch is exported? Uh, the vast majority is still exported. Um, it's uh, obviously there's been that trade dispute with China, which hopefully is getting towards the end of. There's only a couple of commodities left: mm-hmm. uh, lobster and uh, a couple of uh, red meat abattoirs in Australia. But that seafood is still getting consumed. So I haven't stopped fishing. All the all the ITQs are getting, you know, leased and and caught. the The issue is that it's just not going the most efficient way to market. So it's not going direct to restaurants in Shanghai. 
that's going to Vietnam or Hong Kong or Taiwan and then ending up you know, being re-exported. So um, the vast majority of life seafood in Australia, so the abalone and, and lobsters um, and some other crab species are still going to export markets. And what was the restrictions that the Chinese placed on Australian live export crab? Uh, on lobster? Or lobster, sorry. So um, it's still... Still, you know, a, a, a bit unknown what sort of what was the key drivers. I mean, everyone can speculate on on sort of why the relationships broke down, um, you know, during COVID. Yes, but did, what what was the actual restriction they put on on it? Was it that they had to be held up for fifteen days to be inspected to survive COVID, or was it just a a, a prohibition of importation of lobster? Um, what what's been the impediment? Um, <clears throat> so. You can send lobsters there, just that they're being held up on arrival. And if you've got a live lobster, then yep. it can't be held up for you know, more, more many, than... many days. Or, you okay. Know. So, so they're being held up deliberately or part of legislation or ruling? You're not sure. Okay. Yeah, so as I said, it's still unknown You know what was the key driver. The point is, is that the solutions are now coming. You're seeing more commodities let back into China. So recently it was, you know, barley. You know, before that it was coal. Before that it was... Uh, timber and logs um, and they're just being slowly let back in because there was a big suite of commodities that were impacted not just uh, not just lobster yes and you saw Anthony Albanese up in China in October I want to say um, was that on the agenda do you know so there was uh, the 50th anniversary of relations between China and Australia in um, in early November yes so it was a very very important visit and meeting with the president of China. And uh, while he was up there, there is a very large import, international import expo called the China Import, China International Import Expo. And there was Australian, there's Australian uh, delegation. Many exporters were there, including seafood exporters. And there's this iconic photo of the prime minister and trade minister Farrell holding up the lobsters at this at this expo and that and that was on the front page of every paper in australia but also it was widely reported in chinese media and uh you know that was almost sort of unheard of a couple of years ago when we were in you know in the freezer when it comes to china australia relations so um there's no doubt that we're in a far better place and um there's an expectation that um that all all trade sort of impediments, including lobster, will eventually be be dealt with. So it's been, um, you know, it's been a bit of a journey, but you know, these things get resolved, and life will go back to what it was pre-COVID, where where you know the, the industry was um, doing extremely well. And at the moment, am I right in thinking that um, uh, lobster accounts for something like forty-five percent of the portfolio? That's right. Yeah. And and of that. Um, China would be the highest payer or the strongest demand for that lobster. So a strong recovery there is very advantageous for the portfolio, correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, <clears throat> so prior to COVID, uh, when lobsters were going direct to mainland China markets, is the best indication of um, – oh, there are two, two strong indicators if the, the market, that trade resumes. One was what happened prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. So 2019 was, you know – a very strong year where there was no impediments and we had a great trade relation. 
The other one is what's happening in New Zealand. So New Zealand can still export without any impediments. And it's the same species. So it's a, whether it's a Tasmanian southern rock lobster or a New Zealand southern rock lobster, it's the same widget really. Yep. And you same look, species. Same species, same widget. Different side of the line. Yep. Just, <laughs> just different jurisdiction. Yeah. And they're, they're doing extremely well. So there are two clear indicators of what, what can happen. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty transparent look through on, on, you know, I guess the upside if, if China does come back on in, in due course. And I think if, if I'm right here, the domestic market of your portfolio at the moment is about 52% of the portfolio uh, with China being around 15%. Um, and then you've got a good um, spread of South Australia, WA, Tasmania, and also Commonwealth licences by jurisdiction and, a, and a, a pretty big spread by species with the main allocation being to um, Western Rock Lobster. What sort of trends have you seen um, with regard to um, the type of species that you're holding and investing in those quotas other than what's gone on in China? Are there any other um, trends that you'll, you, you see that you can take advantage of or uh, look attractive from an investment perspective? So our portfolio is built on what we're calling the, the, the blue chip ITQ, uh, ITQ species. So let's say there's 400 <coughs> ITQ managed fisheries or fishers around Australia. Building a blue chip is we, we want to look at the best 10%. What are the top 10% blue chip ITQ fisheries? How do you define the best? And so we have a very clear selection criteria that, okay. we, that we drill down on. So one is what, what has it performed historically? You know, is there clear channels to market? Is there low tenancy risk? Is there low substitution risk? Um, when you say tenancy risk, what do you mean by so that? Are there lots of fishes, you know, potential fishes oh, who, okay. would, who would want to lease that? Yes, uh, lease that, uh, that that ITQ. Um, is it is it a, you know is it scale? Has it, you know does it meet a minimum sort of scale threshold? <clears throat> and we and our investment committee spends a lot of time evaluating fisheries against our clear selection criteria, which was set up well before the fund was set up. So. We, we follow that religiously and that's how we've built the portfolio. And then it's a matter of looking for opportunities where we look at sale and leasebacks, freeing up capital or partnering with fishing families or Indigenous communities or uh, young fishers who then want to partner with, with the fund. And so the, 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 the clear trend that we've seen is every ITQ we've bought has been leased and continue to be leased and there's no defaults. So we have a 100% lease book across $300 million of ITQs and strong lease demand. So even though we've had trade issues on certain species, lease demand has has been still very strong and if not growing. So so the Australian seafood industry must have been through its toughest period. COVID, restaurants were shut down, planes stopped flying, markets were closed, uh, you know, we had labour issues, fuel costs, you know, right, and, and we have this very resilient industry. So we have this extremely resilient food industry that, you know, has operated for many, many decades, but until Longreach Maris created a fund, it's sort of been, it's been uh, excluded to, um, you know, to the people outside the industry. And Andrew, if we go back to September 2021, when we talked to you about starting the fund during those COVID times, um, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? 
What what would you do a little bit differently had you have had that opportunity again? So we had a clear view of where we wanted to take this opportunity. We spent a lot of time putting it together. Um, the the whole long reach alternatives team um, you know, put a lot of effort into it. What we um, what we know now and and wasn't done before. So. This fund sure. is new, and a lot of the strategies. Are and new. hindsight's twenty twenty, of course. So, but what we're extremely happy with the way it's developed and grown, and the impact we're having on the ground. But what I know now is 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 how we would, if we knew the strategies that we've developed over time, if we knew them at the beginning, we would have more indigenous fishers fishing. I mean, you know, we we saw, you know the result of the voice and now we, you know, we've still got to, cl to close the gap and, um, and the only way you're going to do, do that is get them, get Indigenous communities engaged in commercial activities. And, but we've learnt a lot of impact strategies and I wish I knew them back then when we started. We would have had, had more, more involvement. We, we would have hit the ground running rather than learning as we were going. So we have high conviction on our impact strategies. They are making a difference. They are changing people's lives. Um, and, you know, it's not me saying that. They say that. They, you know, no one's done this. No one's turned up and handed us the keys to a resource before. And it's on their doorstep. They've just never, never had access to it on a commercial basis. So, you know, that impact piece, without subsidising returns or, you know, diminishing returns... Is, is what is compelling about this opportunity. Food thematic that's having positive impact on the ground and changing people's lives that have been completely excluded or disadvantaged to a resource that, that they have this innate skill set to go and uh, participate in. in An Andrew, in 2022, the fund produced a return of just over 7%, if I'm, if I'm right. Going forward, do you think uh, you'll achieve on top of that? Um, is likelihood over the long term or is that about the mark, do you think? No, we uh, <clears throat> we expect returns to be stronger than that and that 7% return is in the first year of a brand new fund. And so a lot of that includes a lot of capital that hadn't been put to work yet. Mm -hmm. So it was... So you had a bit of cash trade during cash, that well, period. A, a fair bit because, as you know, Coda were strong supporters at the in the early... So, um, takes time for real assets to get to work. You've got to go find them. Uh, you've, got to, you've got to go through a settlement process and you know, where the fisheries agencies, you know, change ownership titles. And then you've got to go to go lease and then you've got to wait for the quota season to start and then the fishing activity to start when income. So there is, there was, there is a lag. There's no doubt about it, you know, because buying real assets does take time to get, get into ownership and then get to work. But what we've seen is um, a big part of the portfolio was lobsters and lobsters, as a result of the trade impediment, were generating a lower yield than typically or than historically. But what we're seeing is as new markets have been found and the industry has sort of got it back on its feet, beach prices are now much stronger, even without China, much stronger than what they were in 22 and 21. And because of our lease structure which works with the fishers, we're seeing greater lease returns to the fund because we've got a higher beach price to the fisher. So our, 
we expect returns to be stronger, yields are going up, um, and if China comes on, then we expect you know, a quite a significant asymmetric, asymmetric upside to the fund if that uh, if that event happens. So, I think uh, the seven percent in the first year is is a strong result, but there are a few things that have you know reduced that number to what it should do in in the future, and that is a brand new fund. Um, just getting going, plus a big portion of the of the portfolio, working in um, owning assets that were you know, below historics, and that was because of a of, of a market disruption. Andrew, when you were talking there about beach price, it just struck me: how do you go about buying an ITQ? Is there an exchange? Are you you know walking around ports and talking to fishers? Are you going to co-ops? What is the mechanism? that allows you to buy them and how sophisticated and liquid is that? So um, historically, unless you're an industry participant, it was very, very difficult. Um, but we, Longreach Maris is born out of industry expertise. You know, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in the Tasmanian seafood industry. Uh, we have wise old sages on our investment committee who've been around for, for many years. So through industry knowledge, you you understand the fisheries and then you can you know, understand um, you know, vet potential vendors. And you know, we estimated when we set up the fund, there was a total market capitalization of about 20 billion. Mm-hmm. And that's all owned by someone, fishing families or investors or self-managed super funds, retired fishers, um, high net worths uh, who, who got into uh, this space. And... There's a natural, there's a natural turnover of these assets. Let's say it's five percent a year, um, for various reasons. You know, uh, divorce, death, debt. You know, all the reasons people sell need to free up capital. And sell. I think that's the category of life. That's right. Yeah. In inverted commas. So there's. So, a, there's so it sounds like it does. It's not. It sounds like it's not in a very very efficient market at the moment, um, and that price discovery is somewhat manual. And that that might, from an economic standpoint, being an old economic student, that uh, you know might lend itself if you've got someone who's building a brand and a known source of capital in the market. Which I'd suggest, after a couple of years of operation, you're probably now. I, I don't know of anyone else doing this, and you're probably not facing a lot of competition at quantity. I'll let you comment on that. Probably in a pretty good position to take advantage of some of that inefficiency around the market. The as from an outsider, mm-hmm. you know, the short answer to your question is yes, but there's a lot of internal industry knowledge. So fishermen do still do a lot of trades and, and we welcome that. We, we, we think they should be the natural buyers of fishing quota, fishermen who actually work the asset. And we're not here to stand in their way. We, we encourage active buying and selling amongst fishers. But as I said earlier, the pool of capital does run out because these are very expensive assets and that's where we can come in and help. And so typically if uh, a fisher was looking to, you know, is that the term fisher? I suppose we're not wanting to use gender, fishermen gen, because gender it's neutral. gender specific. Gender neutral. Um, so uh, if, if, if a fisher um, says, you know, I've got a quota here and I want to sell that and I want to maximise my price, 
what is the way in which they do that? Because if they're only talking to two or three people down at the RSL or the pub or the people they've got in their network, they might miss the premium buyer from the other side of the country um, or elsewhere. So, you know, if let, let's use the example of a fisher is retiring, just exiting, and he's you know worked worked extremely hard and he deserves everything he gets when he sells. It's no it's no different to a farmer selling the farm. I'm retiring. I've been working the farm for 30 years. I'm now I want to cash in and get a caravan, go around Australia. Yep. And, you know, fishers and farmers are very similar and farmland and quota is very similar. So that fisher would know just about everyone in, in that sector anyway. He would know mm -hmm. all of his fisher friends. But also there's uh, there's a broker industry out there and so you could approach a, a, an ITQ broker or you can approach some other fishers. And, you know, then the process starts and, you know, if there's strong demand, he's going to get a strong price for his asset. And if there's sort of lower buying demand, then, you know, he's got to, he might have to sit and wait or, um, you know, negotiate a, you know, a different outcome. So, but typically it's been fisher to fisher until the capital runs out. And that's when extra now, ESG aligned impact capital stuff that's there to deliver good on the ground but achieve a strong commercial outcome, that's the best type of support this industry has been requiring until the long reach Maris term. Because there's still a lot of high net worths out there who are buying but don't bring, you know, what we believe are the real impact and ESG aligned strategies with it, with that capital. Yeah, I think there was uh, a large Australian family that in fact had up to 600 million worth of ITQs when we spoke back in 2021. Um, so it has been a well-worn path for some of those high net wealth yeah, families. So that, yeah, so that was a, um, uh, so there are fishing businesses in WA because it's a very large fishery in the rock, Western Rock Lobster fishery. So there are families who accumulated quota and then, you know, went vertically integrated so and they've done really well over that journey they've done extremely well over um, many many years in that in that fishery well, Andrew thank you very much it's been terrific um, congratulations on getting the fund up and running and and to date the the foundation um, that you've put in place it sounds very encouraging going forward one of the things that we've started introducing as a, a thank you to uh, our guests on the podcast for giving up your time and your knowledge, which were all to all our benefit and, and value, is allowing a bit of a plug for a, a favourite not-for-profit and talking to you off air. And it was my fault in that. I didn't give you a lot of notice earlier this morning that we're introducing this. And I've, I've been prone to forget it a little bit, so apologies. Um, but we do have a few not-for-profits that we've sort of circled and said these are good places that we know um, that, that, that are advantageous. And hearing you talk about the Indigenous slant actually makes this even more apt in that one of those is a group called Bandu, B-A-N-D-U, uh, which Ed Morgan, a young guy, started out last year, which is really solving a problem that exists um, for Indigenous people around education and access to education. Uh, Ed was actually involved at St Joseph's College, Hunters Hill, where I'm... I look after the subcommittee that manages um, the bursary for Indigenous scholarships, which started about 10 or 15 years ago and one of the leaders in Australia. Since then, there's about 45 other schools around Australia that have Indigenous scholarships or bursaries similar to that. Ed noticed there was a, a real need 
to provide the students with a year 13 service. You know, so my boy went to Joey's where I went to and, you know, all of him, me and my mates had real struggle going from year 12 where you just follow the ball and everything's spoon fed through to you at a boarding school through to um, going to university or your first year out, whatever you're doing, because, you know, you, you've all of a sudden got rugby and the pub and everything else. But we were lucky enough to have a really great infrastructure around us with mum and dad. And, and a lot of the time, these Indigenous boys and girls don't have that. Um, and Bandu, uh, that B-A-N-D-U, uh, bandu.org.au, um, and Ed Morgan running that, um, they provide that service to help them. You know, it might be to get a suit to go for a job interview. It might be helping with the application for university. So that's got a nice little Indigenous twist at it as well. Andrew, thank you very much for your input. Congratulations on the fun today. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.